0: Amen. Wow. Worship was awesome this morning, wasn't it? <laughs> My goodness. And there's a, there's a kind of growing connection that's occurring between Tuesday nights and Sunday mornings. Tuesday nights is um, what traditionally you would call a prayer service. We're here from 6.30 to 8. I then go on and uh, lead huddles for the house church leaders, usually online. Some are here. But between six thirty and eight, people feel free to come in and out, and um, we're borrowing the, the the phrase "flow prayer" from our friends in Uganda, because we have a kind of continuous background of worship, and in the interspersing moments, as we're singing and praising, people are leading us in intercession, and. Um, There's a real sense of God's presence. There's amazing things happening in people's hearts. And um, there's a real connection that's developing in the strength and depth of our our worship and our connection with the Lord between Tuesdays and Sundays. So I commend it to you. Um, It's not something you have to come to every week. It's not something that you have to come to for the entirety of the time. You just come in and out. And uh, the children have resources as part of that time and adults who want to worship and praise in perhaps ways that you feel less comfortable with on a Sunday with other people around. If you want to move around, if you want to lay down, if you want to fly, you could try that. Um, But we also also have resources for adults with um, uh, devotional coloring books and all kinds of stuff. So it's a fun time and uh, something that I commend to each of you. Today, we're going to look at a remarkable hero in Scripture. She's a young woman who is in the midst of a deeply oppressive system. Her name is Star in her language. Hadassah was her given name, but because of her amazing qualities of beauty and poise, people began to call her Star, in her own language, Esther. Her cousin, much older than her, was basically her guardian. Her mother and father died, and she took the the invitation of Mordecai to enter his household, and he raised her as his own daughter. During the period of the Persian Empire's catastrophic attempt to conquer Greece that kind of culminated in a number of different really remarkable battles, one of which at Thermopylae uh, was was an incredible kind of um, moment of embarrassment and, and corporate humbling when the 300 Spartans under the leadership of Leonidas held back the greatest army the world had ever seen. And so this this moment in the Persian Empire's life is a moment marked by the usual hubris that goes along with an empire that rules the world, but significant levels of insecurity in the leadership. Xerxes, who is amazingly well-portrayed, I think, in the movies 300 and the one that's following, which I think, I forgot what it's called, maybe it's called 301, I don't know, but um, whatever that one was. And um, in that, he's this kind of cat-like figure, just resplendent in gold and jewels and has this amazing charisma about him. We forget that the royalty that we're more familiar with, the hereditary royals of, of Europe, are nothing like the royalty of the Middle East who usually gain power because of their exceptional abilities as warriors and their athletic ability was usually preeminent among their peers and so you would find these godlike characters at the, at the head of nations and empires and people would understandably be in awe of them. Xerxes Just before the campaign to go to Greece had about six months of preparation when he had all of his courtiers and royal officials gather with him. He displayed all of the wealth and and the strength of the nation. And as a culmination of this, he was to bring in his queen, Queen Vashti. Queen Vashti was a proto-feminist and uh, decided that she was not going to perform for the king and his officials in the way that he expected her to. She was being invited to come and uh, just walk among them, a bit like a a winner of a beauty pageant. And um, she said, uh, no, I'm busy. And um, it didn't go down too well. And um, the systems of oppression that have been known to women throughout the centuries began to move in force and not only Vashti was exiled but proclamations throughout the empire were sent to every household to ensure that men were able to establish their patriarchal authority within their home. Given the example of Vashti everybody was afraid that women might throw off the shackles of past generations, and begin thinking for themselves. What a terrible thought. And so she's exiled, and after the campaign, it would appear, Xerxes returning home humbled, the army in tatters, the empire intact, but so shaken that when a young man called Alexander emerges in the next few decades, of course, the empire falls and a greater empire replaces it, that of Alexander the Great. So this is a a moment in a nation's history where the systems of oppression that work against people of different colors and ethnic backgrounds, against people who for their disposition or their gender are placed on the margins. It's a a time when it's a really risky moment for anyone who's not in a position of privilege and power. Esther is so beautiful that she's called to be part of a process, a competition. A little bit like American Idol or The beauty contest that we see today, she's identified and taken to the king's palace, given six months of beauty treatment, and then, along with the other girls from the empire, is presented to the king as a potential candidate to replace Vashti. And Esther wins. Mordecai is deeply struggling with the whole process. And we'll look at what it is that he does to deal with this, and we'll see what it is that God does in the heart of this amazing heroine, as God uses her, even in her youthful years, to turn a nation and change the world. One of the counselors of the king, a man called Haman, who hated the Jews because of ancient historical grievances decided that this moment of insecurity and this moment in the life of the emperor was the moment to play his hand and so he hoodwinked the emperor into making a proclamation that the Jews should be despised and eradicated and so genocide was to be was to be enacted on a particular day across the cities of the empire. Esther, protected, insulated, is unaware of what's going on. Mordecai sends news to her. Up until now, she, because of her ethnic background, has kept her ethnicity A secret because Mordecai said, look, you can't tell anyone what your nationality is. And he comes to the palace and through an intermediary, he's not, of course, allowed ever to go into the palace compound and certainly not into the compound of the women within the palace. He sends the message that the day has been set for her, her household and all of her people to be destroyed. Now Esther is in an invidious position, of course. What is she supposed to do? And she sends a message back to Mordecai, her guardian, and says, well, I mean, this is terrible, but what am I supposed to do about it? I mean, do you want me to intervene? You know as well as I do that if anyone enters the king's presence without an invitation... It's almost certain death. Only on the occasion when he chooses to graciously extend his scepter to the one who's interrupted him will that person survive. And the king hasn't invited me into his presence for about a month. We'll pick up the story in Esther chapter 4, verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position. For such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish... I perish so Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions now like every great story there has to be a moment of jeopardy I'm assuming you're beginning to feel the jeopardy what's going to happen next Well, the story continues, of course. The fast is completed. Esther believes that God has given her a plan. And so she invites her husband, the the emperor, to a feast. He and his courtiers, including the man who has hoodwinked him into declaring the destruction of the Jews. He comes to the feast. It's a glorious time. It's a wonderful kind of delectation of the taste buds. And he says at the end of the feast, so Esther, I have a feeling that you have a request. She says, yeah, I do. Come to another feast. So she, she creates another feast. And she gets together the best of all of the empire's Fair. And at the end of that feast, she tells her husband of Haman's plan. She, of course, survives. Haman and his co-conspirators are killed. A new proclamation is made because the proclamations of the kings of the Medes and Persians can't be changed. And so, the new proclamation in Esther's handwriting is declared throughout the empire and that is that on the day of genocide all of the Jews are allowed to arm themselves and kill anyone who comes after them and so are able not only to identify the people who are seeking their death but secure their health and happiness for the future and so the situation is turned around God brings an amazing deliverance through the wisdom that he gives to this young woman in this position of privilege and power, and yet a position of conflict and oppression. Now here we have one of the great stories of human history, a story that that is recounted amongst the Jewish people to this day and is part of one of their great festivals through the year. Interestingly, at the end of the book, it's Mordecai that gets the final word. He's the one who's remembered and celebrated, who's invited to be the principal counselor of the king, and who, as it were, is identified as the key component in the turning of the tide. Marduka appears to be a character from the written history of the Persian Empire, recorded in cuneiform on a tablet that is now housed in the Berlin Museum, appears to be the identity of the person known in Scripture as Mordecai. So here we have a story authenticated by archaeology, a story that is celebrated by the people group who were saved, and a story part of Holy Scripture, from which we can learn. The heart of a hero in the midst of oppression, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of amazingly challenging circumstances, is revealed to us, and the role of the mentor to the hero is revealed also. So let's look at these two characters, and let's Just allow scripture to identify in us the things that God did in them that he wants to do in us today. Is that a good deal? No? Okay, good. All right. So let's look at this. Let's look at Mordecai. So you may need to um, just look at your scriptures with me uh, just one more time. Um, We're going to go to Esther chapter 2, and um, this is right at the beginning of the story, just after Esther has been taken into the royal palace, and Mordecai clearly is deeply troubled by what's going on. Here we have in verse 10 of Esther chapter 2, it says, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, here's the thing. If you're a a young person who is maybe in your 20s, 30s or younger still, you have been raised in a world that is somewhat similar to the world that Esther has entered what we've seen down through the centuries is the experience the life the lifestyle the the sense of provision and abundance that was only available to the royal families of history are now available to us who live in this amazing period of history and particularly available to us here in America It's been pointed out by sociologists, particularly a man called Christian Smith, who's a professor of sociology, a very strong Christian at Notre Dame, that those in their 30s and younger are the first generation in history to be raised in the culture of mass market consumerism. In other words, you've been raised in a world where your needs and wants have been set at the center of your life, the life of your family, and the life of the wider culture. Mass market consumerism has not only placed you at the center of the universe, but it has helped you to believe from really the day that you're born that the world around you is here to provide you with the things that you long for, that you look for, and that you desire. We're the first generation, or you're the first generation, I'm certainly not part of that generation, but you're the first generation to be raised in that understanding. And that's the understanding of what it would be to be a royal in days gone by. Now, there are complications about all of that. We know that it would end up in a person perhaps having tendencies towards being self-serving or self-oriented or perhaps placing their wants before the wants of others. Perhaps placing wants before needs. Perhaps believing that somehow they're entitled to things that actually other people have had to work for. We know about all of that. And I don't want to have a granddad sermon. The other thing that happens in a world like that is that you become much more self-aware. You become much more self-conscious. Because you've been placed in a position to become aware of what it is that you're looking for and that you're longing for. And so when the news comes to Esther that the Jews are to be destroyed, her first response is a response of honesty and transparency and a sense of self that is not just a kind of a a whinging self-preservation, but a, a genuine kind of befuddlement, saying, well, I realize that I'm in this position, but what can I do? Now, that, that open honesty, that self-awareness, is something that I think is enormously important. If all of us, especially young people, are to grow with the heart of a hero. Because there has to be a fundamental honesty about the engagement with the world that we're called called to have. We can't have continuous rose-tinted glasses. We can't have a filter that prevents us from dealing with the world as it is or expressing ourselves in the way that we need to. One of the things I find most engaging and encouraging about young people is they tend to tell you the truth about what they're feeling. That's what Esther does. And it's crucial. Because if she doesn't say the truth about what she's feeling, then the person who's tasked to mentor her can't help her. So listen carefully. If you have... Needs. Express them. Not to everybody. Probably not on Instagram. But to the people around you who love you. To the people around you who, who look to care for you. Express your needs. I was raised to not express my needs. I was raised, you know, military family, potty trained at gunpoint. All of that. And that kind of anal retentiveness, which is common to my generation, is just part of the package. Well, I'm so glad that the next generations have set that on one side because now we can engage with some reality. If Esther had come back and said, oh, marvelous. Well, I'm sure God will solve it. Then... Mordecai wouldn't have been able to help her in the way that he did. And what was the first thing that helped Esther? So here's a thing for those of you who are mentors to young people. Those of you who perhaps are just a couple of years older than the people that you're mentoring. Those of you who are parents. Those of you who are grandparents. What's the key that makes it possible For the mentor to speak into the life of the mentee. It's not wisdom. It's not good looks. It's not resources. It's presence. It's presence. Here's the thing. Esther knew Mordecai was there. If you want to help someone through their valley, don't tell them from a distance that you're praying for them. Don't tell them that somehow everything will get better one day because you've seen that process yourself. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to be anything. You have to be present. Esther is in this incredibly confusing world. She's won this competition. She's now the preeminent woman of a a universe that she's never imagined that she'd be part of. And Mordecai, every day, is pacing outside the walls of the palace, and she knows it. And he's found ways to send messages in and receive messages back. He's present. Here's the thing. If you're raising anyone, whether it be your child or your disciple, the predictable pattern of your presence changes everything. The predictable pattern of your presence changes everything. Now, if you look at the the freshly examined data of the behavioral scientists and those who are concerned with child development, and I've checked this with senior pediatricians, what they'll tell you is this. Perhaps the most important thing that a parent can provide is a predictable pattern. Because children who live and grow in a world of predictability grow into people who trust the ones who are caring for them, and trust the environment that they create. And that trust leads to personal security, and that security gains a position of significance so that the person can feel that they're valued, not because of the extent of what it is that's offered, but the predictability of what it is that's offered. It is Mordecai's boring predictability that gives Esther the security that enables her to change the world. Isn't that interesting? Esther has grown with her feet firmly secure in the knowledge that the one who's caring for her is available and present. So there's a huge thing. But what happens when the challenge arrives? What happens when the crisis occurs? We've got the predictability established, but then we're in the immediate moment of the chaos that is changing the predictability and, and is threatening to ruin everything. What do we do? Well, Mordecai, again, is an amazing example he's an amazing example what Mordecai does is to maintain his presence and to offer Esther oodles of time this is very interesting offering time as a resource is a hugely important gift that the mentor can offer the mentee the parent can offer the child the discipler can offer the disciple In my schedule, I have lots of space in it. I've been running a schedule for decades. When I first started running a schedule, I used to have flex time built into my schedule that was actually created in the knowledge that the people that I was leading and investing in would get to their valley, and I wouldn't know when they were gonna get there, but I could predict that they definitely would. It's not like it's a, you know, something you can't predict. It's not like it's a surprise. It may be a surprise in the set of circumstances that bring you to the valley, but honestly, everybody's gonna get there, and the people that you're specifically called to invest in, you need to be available to be able to do that. Now, here's the problem. People of my generation have been trained to fill your schedule because that way, is a way that you get endorsement and affirmation and everybody thinks you're awesome. Yeah? Yeah. And so the older generation are not particularly that helpful to the younger generation because you do need time. So there has to be some flexibility built into the schedule and I literally have it in my schedule. So when someone calls me as they did the other week and said, just said, I'm really struggling, I thought, oh, blow it, I don't really want to do any of this. I don't want to mess with this. This is going to be really complicated and messy. But what I said to them was, that was what I felt, because, you know, it's like... But what I said was, these are the times I'm free. When people send me a text or an email, I have sufficient capacity... To be able to respond quite quickly. People often say to me, how come you respond quite so quickly? What is that about you? It's because over years of mentoring, who knows how many people. If I don't build flexibility into my schedule, then the predictable inputs, struggles and difficulties of the people around me that I need to respond to won't be responded to. And I won't be of any help. Time is the most precious resource that you can give to the person that you're mentoring. Along with time, there are two other things that Mordecai offers. He he offers vision and he offers grace. Along with time, he offers vision And grace. He says. He says look. I think God's grace. Is going to work on behalf of his people. Because he's promised. To prosper his people. And if they're all destroyed. Then obviously he's not going to be able to keep his promise. So if you're not the one. Who's going to help the Jews. Then somebody else will. So he's absolutely certain. About the grace of God. And so. Whatever it is that a person is facing The person that's mentoring them Needs to be cognizant of the fact That an expression of grace In relation to the circumstances That's not just platitudes And well-meaning words But is a true articulation Of the truth That God's in charge And that all things do work together For the good of those who love Him That needs to be something that is carefully and with kindness delivered to the person in the midst of the struggle. God is working. He's not left you. God is present. He's going to bring something out of this. He's going, to, he's going to find a way. God's going to find a way. He's going to, he's going to move a mountain for you. He's going, to, he's going to part an ocean for you. He's going to calm the storm He's going to do something, because right now, as the song says, right now, God's doing something, right now, and he's doing something on your behalf and for you, and so don't don't attempt these ridiculous platitudes of just being thankful for everything, don't be thankful for oppressive systems and injustice, I'm not thankful for those, I hate them, so does God. God. But you can be thankful in all circumstances because you know God is at work. And so the mentor offers time and grace, a a gracious reinterpretation of the circumstances that says, I know this is horrible, I know it's terrible. But I'm looking for what God might do because I know God works in everything. If God can turn the crucifixion into the resurrection, I know He can do this. And then finally, He offers vision. Here's Esther. She's covered up in the shocking realization that her and her Family are going to be killed. She's heard from Mordecai that he's with her. He's not moving. And that he believes that God can pull something off here. And then he offers this vision. He says, hey, who knows? Maybe you've been put in this position for such a time as this. That little spark of vision can cause the the fires of hope to begin to burn. And sure enough, her response is a response of hopefulness. A response of reality. If I die, I die. But it's a response of hopefulness. She's saying, well, pray with me. Fast with me. Me and my community will be doing the same thing and, and maybe... Maybe God will show us the way through. Do you see, mentors? Do you see, parents, what it is that you need in your presence to offer time and grace and vision? Turn to your neighbor and say, time, grace, vision. Go on. But what about the hero? What about those young people here today Listening online, I was privileged to be part of the wedding celebration of some young people who've been touched by God as they've engaged the work of Apex over these last couple of years. It was a great celebration, and it was wonderful to see how God had worked not only in the lives of those who got married, but in the lives of the whole community of young people. It was amazing. What struck me then, as I was thinking and kind of noodling on today's message, was how much this new generation is being shaped by God in their circumstances, a kind of Esther set of circumstances. They're being shaped to be the heroes to take on the challenges that all of us will face. And what is it that we see from Esther that all of us can learn to embrace as God builds in us the heart of a hero. First of all, that word I said at the beginning, being self-aware, recognizing where you need some help, recognizing where you need some support, recognizing where you're frail, where you're weak, where you're struggling. That basic honesty is something that I think is foundational to God. Shaping the heart of a hero. Being open to help. Again, I've been raised in a generation where self-determination and a kind of stick-to-itiveness meant that you did it by yourself. And that radical individualism, I think, is being broken up in the emerging generations. And so being, being honest about your needs and then being open for help That's really, really good. Because, yes, you're called to be a hero, but you're not called to be a hero alone. You're called to be a hero in the midst of a community of heroes. And so being open, being open to the help of others is enormously helpful. Because, you see, you're going to need your squad. You're going to need your group, you're going to need your team. I love Taylor Swift. I love her. I think she's awesome. All of those who judge her will realize she's probably the greatest songwriter of her generation. And she has this amazing world that she lives in. and She's trying to kind of navigate her way through it. And I see it and I hear her. And I recognize some of the expressions of faith that she's attempting to apply to this complex world that she lives in. But the thing that I most appreciate about her is that she always operates in community. She always has her squad with her. She always has the people that she needs around her. And she knows she needs it. It's a fascinating thing to me to see young people, as I did yesterday, operating naturally naturally in a world where they know they can't do it by themselves and so being being self-aware so that you're honest about your needs being open to the help of others and living in conscious community these are the things that form the heart of the hero and then finally and here's a key Practical problems always require spiritual solutions. Always. Of course, practical circumstances need to be changed practically. Of course they do. And it's no good pretending otherwise. But every circumstance of challenge always has at its root... A spiritual issue that needs to be addressed. If you feel as though there is genocide that's being planned against you, that's a practical problem. And you're coming up with a practical solution, which is self-defense. That's a practical solution. But the spiritual issue is this. Do you believe God can change this situation? Do you believe that you're worth God? Changing this situation. Do you believe the people around you can be used by God to speak into the situation? These are all spiritual answers. At the heart of any persons, any families, any communities, any nation's struggles are spiritual solutions. We need to look for them. I mean, to ask God to give us them. And what I see in many of the young people that I encounter is the very raw material of a heart of a hero, Because they are open to help. They are honest about their needs. They do function in conscious community. And so many are looking for spiritual solutions. Quite practical, isn't it, some of this hero stuff? But the point, of course, is this, that you've got something to go away and chew on. Because there's nobody in this room who's either not being called to be the hero or to help the hero. Everybody in this room is in one of those categories. And so as Chad comes to lead us in communion and Chris in the continuing of our worship, I want to say this. Look, we pray every week for people to be healed. We see amazing breakthroughs and miracles. We pray for those online and those in-house. But today, as you consider making a physical response that is articulating a heartfelt prayer, consider this. Those of you who are called to mentor, come and seek God's grace. To do that amazing work. Those of you who are called to be perhaps that younger hero. Come and seek God's grace. To find the spiritual solutions. To the deeply practical problems that you face.